everything we always teach is use case based and problem based. And as long as you're doing those two frameworks, like you're finding use cases that fit what you already do, improve workflows, drive efficiencies in your work, increase productivity, or solving problems more intelligent, like customer churn or audience growth or revenue acceleration, whatever your goals are, like as long as you align the technology you're getting with those and you properly implement them, you're going to get value. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 65 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput, with a special Sunday night, September 24th recording. We usually record this on Monday mornings, but we are coming to you live at 9.15 p.m. Eastern time on <laughs> Sunday night due to travel scheduled craziness. And Mike's got talks. I got talks. I don't know. You, you're back. I'm leaving. Like, But here we are, Sunday night, do, doing this. Uh, for episode 65. So this episode is brought to us by AI Advertising. Start winning with AI Advertising's innovative approach to maximize budget and performance. Use AI to optimize campaigns by gaining deep customer insights, drawing out motivations and behaviors, enabling intelligent targeting, and ensuring messages hit the mark. Stop wasting time, money, and resources. Let AI Advertising lead while you take the credit. Visit AIadvertising.com slash AI pod to learn more. That's one of those, Mike, like we get asked all the time about like advertising use cases for AI. Yeah. Um, so if you've been like pondering way, ways you can use AI in advertising, check out their, their site, AIadvertising.com slash AI pod, um, and just get an idea of some of the use cases that are possible in AI. So it's a, it's a good partner to check out and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. So. With that, Mike, let's get into it. We actually had to cut a few things right before we started <laughs> recording. There was, again, another week where it just didn't feel like there was a ton. And then all of a sudden, Thursday, Friday hit, and I realized like we had like 30 topics in the sandbox and we can only do like 10. So <laughs> let's jump into the ones we picked for the week, Mike. Sounds good. So first up, OpenAI has announced Dolly 3, which is the latest version of their image generation model. So according to OpenAI, Dolly 3 understands significantly more nuance and detail than our previous systems, allowing you to easily translate your ideas into exceptionally accurate images. So you're able to do even better image generation using Dolly 3. And what's more, starting in October, this model, Dolly 3, will be directly integrated into ChatGPT, which means you'll be able to generate images right within it if you're a ChatGPT Plus subscriber. Interestingly, OpenAI says that Dolly 3 is designed to decline requests that it ask for an image in the style of a living artist. So creators can also now opt their images out from training of our future image generation models. So we've got this super uh, high-powered image generation software that's going to be built right into ChatGPT. Paul, how big a deal is it that we have Dolly 3 now right within ChatGPT? 
I mean, it's certainly going to help with adoption. I mean, I, so personally for me, I, I think it's safe to say mid journeys, probably the, the most powerful model that's out there. Yeah. The most powerful tool seems like most of the, the examples you see of the most impressive stuff comes from mid journey, but to use mid journey, I believe you have to go into discord, right? So I've never done it. Yeah. Like I don't yeah. I want to go into discord and create something. So, uh, for me, I will use Dolly three, uh, I assume significantly more. I have used Dolly 2 many times since it came out last spring. So that came out in spring of 22, if people aren't familiar. Um, and Mid Journey actually came out right around that time. Uh, so yeah, the ability to have it integrated right into what you're doing is going to be, I think, huge for adoption. And the early examples they were showing were certainly impressive to see. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. I thought this was going to come in November and we, you know, we've known this was coming. They haven't said a thing about Dolly, but they had, they had announced a big developer conference. I think it was November 6th or something. And so in my mind, I was kind of assuming we were going to hear something about Dolly. Plus when Bard announced that they had the ability to have images baked into Bard, you knew OpenAI was going to, you know, have that capability too. So yeah, I think this is going to be a big deal. And if it works the way it appears in the demo, I think they're going to get a ton of use of uh, from consumers in it. So like you mentioned, mid journey is a huge leader in this space. You know, I've used it in discord to your point. It's not exactly easy to set up and get started with, but how do you see this stacking up against tools like mid journey that are leading the way right now in image generation? The way they were positioning it and its capabilities and its ability to handle like words and nuance um, and and also the ability we've talked about how prompting isn't going to be as critical in the future that the AI is going to, in essence, do the hard work for you behind the scenes. They talked a lot, a lot about that, that the thing's going to basically understand a lot more of the context of what you actually are looking for. So you don't have to be as good at prompting to get, you know, high quality results. So I think we're just going to continue to see that and and obviously OpenAI is continuing to commit to image generation as part of their play moving forward. So if I'm a marketer or a business leader at this stage, like should I be taking the plunge and getting ChatGPT plus in anticipation of having access to this? I mean, like we've said on the show before, I, I think everybody should probably have ChatGPT plus at this point. ChatGPT Enterprise, I don't know. That's a whole nother story. Mm. But the 20 bucks a month to, to play around with this, uh, certainly. And then I think they're, are, they're open, opening up through the API as well, right? They, they're going to let so, people yeah. build on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would assume like, you know, I know what like HubSpot, I think, is using the APIs for Dolly too. So, you know, if you're a HubSpot customer, I think you can build images in there using Dolly. Yeah. So I would imagine you're going to see this stuff pro proliferate through not just the use of ChatGPT, but the ability to have uh, image generation and through, through the API. So, yeah, I mean, I think that if it does what it, again, what it's showing, it's going to be able to do, it's probably going to wide scale adoption, um, by non-designers like me. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's the beauty of it is like, I, I have no design capability whatsoever and I hate looking for stock photos. So if we have the capability to go in and use a tool like this, um, in social posts and blog posts and proposals and keynote presentations like that was for me you know i do so many talks and you're doing a ton of talks now too finding images for keynote presentations alone i would pay 20 bucks a month to be able yeah. to just like have images on demand so 
yeah, I think it's just going to be a huge value, um, again, if it works the way it's supposed to. And I mean, Dolly 2 is pretty good. So I, I would expect this is going to be pretty powerful. So in another major news story this past week, so generative AI is actually entering its next phase. And this phase is focused on creating real customer value, according to a breakdown from venture capital firm Sequoia Capital. And in this article, which they published on their website, which we'll link to in the show notes, Sequoia says we're essentially transitioning from act one to act two of generative AI. Act one is more proving out the technology. Act two is actually solving real human and therefore customer problems. So they say, quote, generative AI's first year out the gate, act one, came from the technology out, so to speak. We discovered a new, quote unquote, hammer foundation models and unleashed a wave of novelty apps that were lightweight demonstrations of cool new technology. We now believe that the market is entering Act 2, which will be from the customer back. Act 2 will solve human problems end to end. These applications are different in nature than the first apps out of the gate. They tend to use foundation models as a piece of a more comprehensive solution rather than the entire solution. They introduce new editing interfaces, making the workflows stickier and the outputs better. They are often multimodal. So Sequoia has basically outlined that the early winners in this space include people like ChatGPT and Midjourney who have found product market fit. But overall, the user engagement and retention of a lot of these Gen AI apps and tools remains low. So they're really focused on how do these companies and these tools evolve to actually retain customers. So there's a lot to unpack here, but Sequoia seems to be saying that essentially the Gen AI market is here to stay and it's moving faster than even the biggest champions of generative AI have anticipated, but there's still some roadblocks to figure out here from a consumer app facing perspective. So Paul, as you're reading this, what is your take on where we're currently at in the generative AI market? I mean, I think overall, I, I agree with their premise here, but I also think a lot of times what happens with not just Sequoia, but the venture capital firms, Silicon Valley in general is they, they kind of live in this bubble where they're seeing adoption rates at a certain clip. They're having conversations with really forward thinking organizations. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes they're, they're just too far out ahead of the market a bit in, in their perception of what's happening. So I, I don't disagree at all that that act one, you know, we've got these models and now we need to move on and like make them super value based in act two. Like I get that. But I also think that the existing like act one in their terms are still almost largely on tap. Like there's there's so many use cases people could be doing that they just don't know to do. There's so many professionals who aren't experimenting with this stuff. So many CEOs who still don't really know. I mean, we talked about this on the last episode. There's the adoption is so low still. And, you know, I commonly see, you know, tweets from like an Ethan Mollock or just like, I don't think people realize like the capabilities these things have. And if you just learn to prompt a little bit better what you can unlock with them. But I do think that there's also this challenge of um, these models aren't 
normal software. Like an enterprise and a business, they want things to work like software works. Like you buy a thing to do a very specific task and you want it to do it right every time. And that's not how these things work. And so I just, I feel like, you know, we keep coming back to this idea of AI literacy and people really understanding what this stuff is and how it works. And, and I don't care if we're on act five, like until we get literacy right and until people understand at a broader level what this stuff is and what it's capable of it, it just it's not gonna matter as much so i don't know i mean i think overall again I, I i get where they're going i mean i think building vertical solutions building ai agents that take more actions that are more you know tangible in terms of their value that makes a lot of sense but I also come back to like, none of these things even have user guides. Like we're just, we're putting out these powerful things in the world, like a GPT-4 and no one teaches you how to use it. It's like five months later, OpenAI releases some guide of, you know, here's you know best practices of prompting, but it's just not like normal software. And it, it, so the adoption curves are going to be the same. The value extraction is going to be the same. Like they're using all these analogies about you know, what, it, what standard retention rates are and things like that across software and it's like i don't i don't know i don't know that's comparable um but i did there was one thing that jumped out to me when i was reading it that you know people think this all just happened overnight <laughs> like I, I always come back to this chat gpt moment at november 30th 2022 i mean we're almost coming up on the one year anniversary of of that day um and how much it changed things and how so many people think ai was like this thing that just sort of showed up 2022 but they had a paragraph in here that said, this moment has been decades in the making. Six decades of Moore's law have given us compute horsepower to process exaflops of data. Four decades of the internet have given us trillions of tokens worth of training data. Two decades of mobile and cloud computing have given every human a supercomputer in the palm of their hands. In other words, decades of technological progress have accumulated to create the necessary conditions for generative AI to take flight. So... I thought that was a cool frame. And then the other thing that jumped out to me was toward the end, they go into when they published a year ago, their kind of like generative AI document, they were revisiting their thesis. And I, I respect that they were straight up like, here's everything we got wrong. But the things they got wrong are really significant. Like, so it kind of goes to show, you know, what we say all the time, like nobody has a clue what's going to happen. So their theory of act two is as good as any theory I've seen. I have no idea if it's right or not. Like it, it makes sense in some cases, but listen to this. They said the first thing here, what we got wrong, things happened quickly. So keep in mind, they published this, uh, what about 45 days or so before ChatGPT came out last year. Hmm. Um, they said last year, we anticipated it would be nearly a decade before we had intern level code generation. Hollywood quality videos or human quality speech that didn't sound mechanical. All of those things happen in like six months after they wrote this thing. Um, but a quick listen to Eleven Labs voice on TikTok or Runway's AI film festival makes it clear the future arrived at warp speed. Um, they didn't anticipate the the lack of supply of chips. They did. I mean, it, like they thought verticals would take off sooner. So just, I guess my point is like, take all of this. Like we say with everything else, you, you have to absorb this information. You can listen to us talk about it. You can go listen to some other podcasts, go read some books, whatever it is. But you have to kind of like form your own thesis and then figure out what that means to your business and your career. Because even the smartest people in the room, Sequoia is brilliant. The people doing this stuff, they're at the top of their field and have been for decades. One of the most respected firms in the industry. And they get major things wrong in their own thesis. So it's just, 
that things are moving so quickly, it's really hard to to look around the corners, like we say. Um, yeah, that was kind of some, a few of my initial thoughts on on this piece. So to that point about trying to look around the corners, like you started to kind of give some advice here. Like if I'm a business or a business leader or a marketing or business practitioner, you know, trying to wrap my head around this stuff, like given what Sequoia is talking about here, given what we've just discussed, like what should I be thinking about when it comes to approaching generative AI tools? Well, I mean, they toward the end, they said, in short, generative AI's biggest problem is not finding use cases or demand or distribution in proving its value. This is like everything we teach corporations all the time. You know, marketers, business leaders, find use cases that are valuable to you. Like if you're going to get a language model, you're going to get an AI writing tool, like are you spending 50 hours a month doing transcription of podcasts and summarization of those into blog posts? Like you can get value right now with act one of generative AI. You don't need act two to get a ton of value. So everything we always teach is use case based and problem based. And as long as you're doing those two frameworks, like you're finding use cases that fit what you already do, improve workflows, drive efficiencies in your work, increase productivity, or solving problems more intelligent, like customer churn or audience growth or revenue acceleration, whatever your goals are, like as long as you align the technology you're getting with those and you properly implement them, you're going to get value. You don't have to wait around for GPT-6 to get value out of this stuff. We Again, we talk to companies all the time that are doing nothing with this stuff. Like they're just sitting there almost like paralyzed by like too many things, too many opportunities. Just pick something. And, and like like we use, we've talked about the Institute, just writing tools alone. It, yeah. it, it's so transformational to our blogging, our podcasting, our content strategy, our social media. Like as a team of now seven, um, I mean, it's got to save us 100 plus hours a month just across yeah. seven people. Um, so that again, like awesome. I love the thesis. Love like the big picture thinking from Sequoia about where this is going. Don't as a listener to this show, get caught up in thinking you need to understand whatever the heck act two is and that like you're already behind because you're, you didn't do act one, right? Like, no, just it's great information, process it, think about it, and then just go find use cases and problems to solve today with the stuff we already have, because it's already awesome. That is good advice. Um, so our third big topic is on the surface about the accounting industry, but it's really about much, much more. And so if you're not an accountant, trust me, this will have value to you. But we saw a report from the Wall Street Journal recently that said more accountants are quitting due to some of the work factors like monotonous work, limited career growth, and burnout from long hours. However, a big factor underneath that is also that people are weighing switching jobs due to AI threatening their role. Now we see these accounting firms actually increasingly adopting generative AI and accountants are increasingly facing this kind of risk where gen AI is endangering their roles and kind of fueling some of the frustration they have about their jobs. In the Wall Street Journal article, one of the people who runs an accounting education company said, as technology gets further and further ahead, we're stuck in place and the gap is getting wider essentially between 
what is expected of them and their actual job satisfaction. So we're talking about accounting here, but really this is a bigger picture because Paul, you posted about this on LinkedIn in the sense that we are projecting that 80% of what we do as knowledge workers generally, that includes accountants, will be AI assisted to some degree in the next couple of years. And this isn't just a story about jobs being lost or people being worried about AI. It's also a story about people like accounting firms not being able to find the right workers, the right level of talent. Can you unpack for us what you kind of found interesting about this? Yeah. So, I mean, if I had to rank the things I spend the most time thinking about related to AI, I, I would imagine the impact on jobs is probably number one. So I think about this topic nonstop and I keep, I mean, I wish I had like two weeks to just really dive into this and, and formulate all my thinking around it. But in essence, what I'm trying to do is take a look out and project what is the real impact going to be? Net gain, net loss of jobs over 12 months, over five years, like really trying to analyze this. And so often when this conversation comes up, because I get asked at almost every talk I do about job loss, um, and I don't always have like the best answers, but I've done like, I mean, I just did the insurance industry. I've, I've talked with a banking conference week. I have talked with auditors of universities. Like there are all these different audiences. I talked with students last week. So I did a talk at a university where there's a bunch of uh, college students who asked maybe some of the best questions I've heard about AI, just brilliant questions. Um, but when, when we talk about it, what we often think about is, okay, we have writers, we have marketers, we have SEO professionals, we have accountants, we have lawyers, we have all these knowledge workers. And you look out and you say, okay, you know, if we take 10 lawyers um, and this is what they do all day and the AI can help do that, do we need as many lawyers in the future? Not that we don't need lawyers, but do we need as many? So the, the, it always comes down to this, like, well, do we just need as many humans doing the thing? And so that's the main lens we look through. So the, the example I gave on LinkedIn, I said, you know, the, the change in knowledge work is being accelerated because Google, Microsoft, Salesforce, HubSpot, Adobe, Oracle, all the software we use in business is infusing generative AI into it. So you're not going to be able to get away from generative AI two years from now. So I, I'm, I'm fairly confident in this 80% plus number will be, you know, of, of work will be assisted by AI because it's going to be in every piece of software we use. So you, it's going to be everywhere. So if that is true, then you have to assume you're going to create efficiencies in the production of products and services, and that that will likely reduce the amount of people needed to do the work. So again, the AI can't do the job of a lawyer. It can't do the job of a writer or an SEO professional or an email marketer or like any, any knowledge work, an accountant, it can't do their job, but it can make their job way more efficient. So you just need fewer of those people. So the thing I said in here is like the two variables about this part of the equation is, is there demand? And we talked about this before, but I'll recap in case people missed it on the podcast. Is there demand for increased output? So AI helps drive efficiency for marketers or accountants. And is there demand for increased output? In other words, if you can produce X, whatever that is, whatever product or service or asset that is, in 30% less time, is there demand to produce more of that with the hour saved? If there isn't demand for more of it, then you you reduce workforce. So if I don't need to write more articles or I don't need to 
um, develop more briefs or I don't need to crunch more spreadsheets or, you know, P&L statements. Like there's just, a, there's a finite supply of them. I'm not going to do more of them than I need less people. The second piece is we're going to save a bunch of time and money, but we're not going to get rid of our people. We're actually going to reinvest it in them. We're going to reskill them, upskill them. We're going to shift them to new roles. So that eliminates the you know need for workers to go away. So that's the main conversation that we often have is, do we need as many people? But the part that often gets overlooked is, well, what about an accounting or an insurance or in some of these other industries where they can't hire enough people? They are losing people at massive clips and they need people in administrative roles, in entry-level roles, and they can't get them. There's not enough recruits coming in. There's not enough people majoring these things in college. And you have industries that are at massive deficits uh, when they look to the next five to 10 years for where is the employee workforce going to come from? So that's what caught my attention about this accounting one is they said there were 1.65 million accountants and auditors in the U.S. in 2022. It's up 1.3% from the previous year, but down 2.6% from 2020. And this was the real kicker and down 15.9% from 2019. More than 300,000 accountants quit their jobs between 2019 and 2021. So if I run an accounting firm, and I'm sitting here thinking, wow, AI is going to do the job of accountants. We're in trouble. No, you have 300,000 people left the profession. What if AI is the savior for the profession? And so that was kind of the premise I was saying is like, in this example, AI can be seen as a threat since a lot of accounting work is data-driven and repetitive. Two of the variables we always say, if it's data-driven and if it's repetitive, there's a good chance AI can help you do it. So there's a lot of that work in accounting. So it can be seen as a threat for people who are still accountants, but it can also be seen as a possible solution for leaders of accounting firms who can't hire enough people. And so when you start to factor in those kind of two different approaches of we have work, we can do it more efficiently, we don't need as many people, to then you look over at other industries and say, well, they don't have enough people. Mm. That's where it gets really hard to say, well, what is the net gain going to be? What is the net loss of jobs going to be? And and why it's so hard to project out because there's a lot of industries that are really struggling to get those kind of people and to keep those kind of people. So it, it's going to be, I mean, in, in reality, like it could make it even messier because, I mean, if you're in the accounting industry and looking at saying, okay, over the next 10 years, we're going to lose another half a million. I don't know. I'm just making up a number, by the way. Let's say we're going to lose another half a million accountants out of the industry over the next decade. You are full go into AI, into absolutely everything you can. And, and you may, because you have no other choice, you may accelerate the reduction of workforces in accounting because you're just, you have to rely on the AI. And how do you predict that? Like, I, I haven't seen a study from an economist yet that's looking out and saying, okay, accountants are going to lose another half a million over the next 10 years. And so over the next three years, they have no choice but to infuse AI into everything they do. And when they do that, it's going to reduce the workforce by 50%. Like, I don't know, but I, somebody's got to do those studies because that was my whole point. Is like, at the end of it, I said, the only thing I know for sure is that we should be talking about this more, that this topic of impact on jobs isn't being talked about enough hmm. by enough people who have knowledge in specific industries or by economists who do this for a living, not me who you know, plays an economist on Sunday nights on our podcast and took a couple of economics courses in college. Like, other than that, I I'm just trying to theorize here based on observations. So that was my main thing is like, it's just a really important topic to be talking about. And if you're in one of those industries where you're 
seeing that massive talent gap, there's a really good chance that the leaders in those industries are going to become aware of AI's potential to fill that talent gap very quickly. And that may accelerate the impact AI has in that profession in good and bad ways. Yeah, it seems like a point that we often bring up in our talks, our workshops, our consulting, and just conversations internally is this idea that so many people are asking the question now, like, how should I use these tools? And that's a good question to ask. But a bigger question is what impact will these tools have on our business, our industry, our change management that we need to do moving forward? Yeah, and I, I think I said this on the previous episode, but I'll, I'll again reiterate it. Don't wait for the definitive study to come from McKinsey or Gartner or Forrester or your industry association. They're not going to solve this for you. Like this, this has to be you or your company gaining the knowledge more deeply about what AI is capable of, Act 1 AI or Act 2, whatever you want to categorize it as. And looking at your teams, looking at the roles and responsibilities of those team members, looking at the reality of your ability to recruit and retain talent in your industry. There's just too many variables that outsiders aren't going to know. And that's why I was saying, like, we just need this as a topic that's being talked about in every company. And, and, I, and again, I'm not trying to be alarmist here. I'm not trying to say like, oh, we're just going to lose a bunch of jobs. That's not, that's not it. I think that's going to happen. But that's not the point of doing this. The point is you need to figure out if it's going to happen in your company or in your industry. I think it's going to happen in ours. And I, I'm, you know, I've been doing this for 23 years in our industry. So I, I'm comfortable assessing the impact on writers and SEO professionals and email marketers and stuff like that because that's what I do. I'm not an insurance professional. I'm not an accounting leader. So I just feel like we need those people thinking about this in their industry and solving it for themselves. All right, let's dive into our rapid fire topics for this week. First up, Google just announced some major updates to Google Bard, which is its AI assistant and chat GPT competitor. And basically they are launching something called Bard extensions, which is a way to interact and collaborate with Bard. Basically what Bard can now do is find and show you relevant information from Google apps that you use every day. So things like Gmail, Docs, Drive, Google Maps, et cetera. And this is an interesting set of updates, but also one that's hitting some kind of rocky obstacles here because New York Times reporter Kevin Roos tested these out and actually found them somewhat wanting at the moment. He said, I put the upgraded Bard through its paces hoping to discover a powerful AI assistant with new and improved abilities. What I found was a bit of a mess and basically goes through saying that, look, it was able to do some of the basic things I was trying to achieve, but overall it was not giving me very sophisticated or advanced advice or outputs from the capabilities they claim that Bard was able to do. So. Paul, first up, Kenna, what did you make of these updates, like of Kevin Roos's response here? What's going on with Google and Bard? Yeah, it, did OpenAI call theirs extensions too? They, they were apps, they were right? Plugins, I plugins is what they call them. Yeah, okay. Not to be confused with. <laughs> uh, 
So, uh, you know, as we've talked about before on the show, I, I fully expect when all things are said and done that, that Google is a major player in all of this and that they will be highly competitive, if not ahead of OpenAI in a lot of areas. And it would appear that we're not there yet. Um, so this is a step in, a, in the direction, you know, the ability to query my emails and things like that sounds awesome on the surface. It does fall under that, uh, our law of uneven AI distribution. You have to be willing to give up access to these things. And I think I was trying to find the screenshot I took when it asked me if I wanted to connect it in my personal Gmail, but I think it said something like they might give that data to like third parties. Like there was mm. something that gave me pause. I was like, oh, I'm going to come back to this. So I did not turn it on in my personal account yet. Cause I wanted to dig into the terms some more, but. Yeah, I haven't seen anybody who was blown away by this and like, oh, this is the game changer we've all been waiting for. So I would say like everything else we've said with Google, test it out, keep an eye on it, probably wait for Gemini this fall with their next language model, their multimodal model they're supposed to be coming out with. Maybe that's going to be the leap forward we keep waiting for from Google. But um yeah, I don't know. But if anybody is using this and seeing value in it, hit me and Mike up on LinkedIn. Let us know. I'd love to hear about it because I haven't seen anybody yet who's, you know, really loving what what they're doing yet with Bart. <laughs> it's coming. Like, I'm I'm confident it's it's going to come. It's, I, don't, I don't think we're there yet, though. So with every Google announcement, there's a corresponding Microsoft announcement. And this is this week is no different because Microsoft had a hardware event, but they actually focused quite a bit on artificial intelligence during it. And they announced that they are expanding and kind of unifying their Copilot AI assistant across their products. So Copilot is basically Microsoft's generative AI assistant that can help users with Things like writing emails, generating code, summarizing docs, and more across kind of all their uh, their apps. Um, they actually announced that starting on September 26th, so the day this podcast drops, Copilot will be rolled out as part of a Windows 11 update and will be integrated across Microsoft apps like Word, Excel, Outlook, and Edge. So you'll be able to actually use Copilot using voice commands or just by clicking and starting to type. And this is going to eventually allow you to do things like organize your desktop windows, create playlists based on musical tastes and solve math equations just by snapping a photo. So basically anything you're trying to do using Windows 11 is going to be able to be assisted by artificial intelligence. Now, Microsoft at the same time also announced some upgrades to uh, other AI services. You'll be able to start using Dolly 3 in Bing because they do have a partnership with OpenAI. And there are going to be some new shopping features in their visual search within Bing. Now, Paul, it seems like this is some pretty serious like AI firepower to have across these apps. We've talked about it a little bit. Sounds like it's rolling out uh, pretty quickly. Like, how big a deal is this? What kind of effect will this have on people using Microsoft products? Yeah, I mean, this is the the one we've been waiting for. Obviously, we talk about Duet AI from Google Workspace is the other major one here. But the to me, the biggest unknown to knowledge work in 2024 is whether or not these work, like the demo video show. 
so so far with Duet AI, it hasn't like it, it's not fundamentally changing um, work. The Copilot one, maybe. And, and the, I found this this page. There's a lot of information on this page. The blog post will put it in, but it says Copilot will begin rollout in uh, September 26, like you said, a free update to Windows 11. But then further down, it talks about November 1st is like when they're going to, let's see, we're excited to share that Microsoft 365 Copilot will be generally available for enterprise customers November 1st. Hmm. I don't know. Like, so I, I, my guess is if you're an enterprise customer and you're going to pay the 30 bucks a month, it sounds like November 1st might be your target date, uh, but it's going to start coming out through Windows this week, like you were saying. Um, yeah, I mean, my my whole take here is I have heard from some people who have access to this in the last two months who were blown away by it. Um, we've referenced the demo video. We'll put it in the show notes again from March. That was like, like seriously probably the best demo video I've ever seen for a software product. Um, well, Runway does some really good ones too. But uh, if the, if, Co if, if 365 Copilot does what it shows in the demo video, PhD level data analyst in Excel, real-time transcription of meeting notes with summarization and action items, uh, writing documents for you based on documents in your cloud where you just click here and click there and like, you know, develop a brief based on this or build a 10-slide deck based on this press release and it just does it seamlessly. Like, if it does those things, it changes knowledge. There's a lot of organizations that use Microsoft to do what they do in Word and Excel and PowerPoint. And if it changes that then it's the thing we've been waiting for so i will be very anxious come november to see if it really does so we also have some movement on the uh regulatory front when it comes to artificial intelligence so first up the eu appears to be closer to enacting their artificial intelligence act the ai act into law by the end of the year. So we actually heard from a spokesperson for the European Union Parliament on the AI Act saying that the body is in the final stages of negotiations. And his name is Dragos Tudorake, and he said, we are in the final stages of the negotiations between the Parliament and the Council, the two co-legislatures that work in Europe on putting forward legislation, and we are very close to the finish line. And basically he said, we are expecting to see the AI Act by, I think, the tentative timeline is the end of the year. And basically, this is a wide-ranging set of regulations in the European Union that make sure that AI systems are used in a safe, transparent, traceable, and non-discriminatory fashion. Uh, basically, this is going to be seen as the benchmark for a lot of legislation that could come out of the U.S. or other countries about regulating AI. So, Paul, when you saw this, I mean, we've talked about the AI Act a couple of times. Are you what are you, what are you looking at and paying attention to when it comes to this? Yeah, we've known that they're ahead of the U.S. They've been working on this for years. Generative AI, I think, threw a curveball at it. I think they were probably getting close to the finish line about this time last year, and then ChatGPT showed up and. They had to maybe rethink what the laws were going to be and how they were going to be governed. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they said they think that negotiations by November and then close the process and then have a final vote in Parliament and Council, which they seem relatively confident um, 
they they would get through. Uh, he did stress, and it was like a four and a half minute video. He did stress that once it does become law, assuming it does, then they have to actually put the processes and governance in place to oversee it. So I have no idea how long that takes. It does not sound like a 30-day process to me. So I'm assuming if they can get the law through this year, early next year, that sometime in 2024, they will actually start you know, governing that law. So, uh, yeah, I would go read up on it. I, I think it's important. They, they talk about the key categories of unacceptable risk, high risk. They get into generative AI. Specifically, they say, uh, like ChatGPT, would have to comply with transparency requirements. These are the real s- sticking points to me. I, I just don't even know how ChatGPT or BARD would be available in the EU when you read these. It says you have to disclose uh, content was gener- generated by AI. So, again, if you're brands, if you're listening to this and you do work in the EU, you have customers in the EU, think about the implications for yourself. Disclose the content was generated by AI. Don't know how how much you have to disclose or if it's every post, who knows. Uh, You have to disclose the uh, transparency around designing the model to prevent it from generating illegal content. So you have to have guardrails in place. Um, Good luck with Twitter slash X doing their model because they're trying to remove all the guardrails. And then publishing summaries of copyrighted data used for training. There's a real, real fun one. So we're going to get disclosure on all the stuff that these things were trained on that they weren't supposed to be trained on. So that's why, you know, I don't know. Like, it's very possible. They just, the EU doesn't have access to these models um, in the early going. Or, uh, well, actually, now I'm thinking about this. So the, this may force, like, the release of GPT 4.5 or 5 might have to come out faster because if they're going to train it on licensed data, GPT 4 is not like, I mean, there's sort of licensed data in there, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not licensed and they don't want to disclose it. They're going to have to release a new model. So that would lead me to believe that a lot of these foundation models that were trained on stuff they probably shouldn't have been trained on. We would maybe be seeing new versions of those next year before they're released into the EU because the current versions probably wouldn't fly. Hmm. Could make for an interesting year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not the only thing going on when it comes to regulation and issues around kind of legal uh, items related to artificial intelligence. Kind of a quick hitting segment here. We have a few updates when it comes to regulation. So first up, uh, we have seen a bipartisan bill in the U.S. actually introduced by Senators John Thune and Amy Klobuchar that aimed to take a quote, light touch approach to governing AI technology. So basically they're trying to write legislation and pass it that mitigates risks from artificial intelligence without super heavy handed regulation that could stifle some innovation. And at the same time, a couple other items that are happening at the moment, uh, we are also getting some significant uh, names adding their uh, kind of signature to the Authors Guild suing OpenAI. The Authors Guild, we covered this in a past episode. They're engaging in a class action lawsuit against OpenAI because there have been uh, some allegations that books have been illegally used to train some of the models like GPT-4. So George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame and the author Jody Picoat uh, filed a class action lawsuit alleging that OpenAI is illegally using their work without permission to train its systems. 
in addition to all of this, the White House at the same time has also said that it could force cloud companies to disclose their AI customers. They are considering requiring these firms to report some information about their customers to the U.S. government. This is according to some reporting from Semaphore. Basically, this would direct the Commerce Department to write rules forcing cloud companies, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, to disclose when a customer purchases computing resources beyond a certain threshold. So nothing has come of this yet. It has not been finalized and the specifics could change. But the government in the U.S. is actually considering some action around that aspect of AI. Now, Paul, as you're seeing these updates, like where are we at in the U.S. at least when it stands uh, when it comes to regulation? Well, I've, I've said for the last couple of months, that I'm, I'm most interested in the executive order. When Biden's office teased that an executive order would be coming this summer, they, they missed the mark as we are now in the, in the fall officially. Um, but I, I, I think something is still coming. This is the first time I've seen a specific item that might be in that executive order. The word is it's a very, very long executive order. Mm. And my guess is some of these things that we've been hearing about on uh, Capitol Hill, some of the conversations that happened with senators, some of this regulatory capture we talked about where these big existing AI companies are sort of pushing for very specific regulation. Uh, it's starting to sound like some of those requests may find their way into an executive order and we might get some action sooner than later. Um, this one makes a lot of sense to me. They give the example in the Semaphore article about the banking industry has this, like, you know, banks have to report if something uh, is suspicious in terms of money laundering or other illegal activities or transactions exceeding like a certain threshold each day. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, that it's an interesting way to monitor it, but you'd have to I would think you would have to dis you would have to require if you're not going to allow it, you're basically saying that anything more powerful than GPT four needs to be disclosed is which is what they were going for originally anyway. Hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I would pay attention to the executive order. I still my kind of spidey senses is like that this is coming sooner than later, and I think it's going to be far reaching. So on kind of the self-regulation side, TikTok is actually introducing a new label that creators can use to tag their content that's been heavily edited by AI tools. They also plan to start testing automatically labeling content detected as AI generated. And this is basically designed to better inform viewers like, look, what you're watching and hearing is AI generated and make sure that we're limiting the spread of misinformation. Paul, how significant do you see this being? I mean, given TikTok's user base, but also like, is this just a PR move or are they actually able to start detecting labeling this type would, of content? I would imagine there, there's probably some advanced ways to do detection now. And I, I hope, um, I hope it's a sign of these capabilities being more widely available because as you and I have talked about many times, like my biggest concern right now is elections and democracy. Like I, I'm really worried about the average citizen does not know AI can create things. So we, you know, again, we live in this bubble. We talk about this stuff all the time. People who listen to this think about this stuff all the time, but there's a really good chance. A lot of your family and friends have no idea that AI can make videos, can make images that look real, can do deep fakes and things can, generate language like it's just not common knowledge 
And so I'm just really worried that moving into the next you know 12 months or so leading up to the elections in the U.S. that um, we need all the help we can get to detect and inform people if things are AI generated. So yeah, hopefully whatever TikTok's doing is a sign of things to come from other companies. So in a more positive use case for artificial intelligence, if you want to use AI for SEO, we have a really good resource that takes a deep dive into how to do just that. This comes from our friend, Andy Crestedina at Orbit Media Studios, and he just published an article that's a masterclass in how to use generative AI like ChatGPT to uncover SEO insights and optimize content for search. It's a big long article that is well worth bookmarking. You have to check it out on your own. We're going to just skim over the highlights here because Andy gives step-by-step advice on how to rank better in search with AI. And that includes use cases like using AI for SEO edits, using it for title tag edits and recommendations, uh, using it to find gaps in your homepage content and much, much more. So Paul, this, you know, obviously is an area that we are very focused on. This seems like a pretty good out-of-the-box use case for marketers of just off-the-shelf tools like ChatGPT. Like, do you agree? Yeah, and Andy's the best. Like, I love going to Andy's talks. He always does, like, super tactical, high-value presentations. And so anything he does like this, whether it's Google Analytics or SEO or content strategy, he gives awesome stuff. So yeah, I mean, if you're into SEO content strategy, definitely check this out. And then quick plug, Andy's actually going to be speaking at our AI for agencies summit. So if you're a marketing agency, we have a summit coming up November 2nd, just AI for agencies.com. Andy's actually doing an AI for SEO talk, um, at that summit. It's a virtual summit. So that's it. That's my quick plug <laughs> and, and go check out Andy. Cause he's brilliant. Yeah, it really is worth worth visiting and revisiting. He he just breaks down everything you need to know. Um, last but not least, we have X, formerly Twitter, has made some changes to how it displays tweets on their platform. Now the platform is defaulting to hiding tweets that have external links. And Elon Musk uh, defended this decision publicly by tweeting, uh, the algorithm is trying to maximize unregretted user time on X, which is a good goal. If a link is very compelling and sent by many, you will see the link. However, this was in response to some very intelligent criticism from renowned venture capitalist Paul Graham, who said, quote, in order to keep you here, Twitter gives less exposure to tweets with links. If you don't want to be manipulated in this way, make a point of posting links and liking and retweeting tweets that contain them. So some user pushback from a big Twitter user here and a public debate around what is uh, X actually doing with user engagement in these tweets. Paul, this caught your attention. We've talked about how X fits into a bigger AI picture. What did you take away from this update? Yeah, it's just the, the manipulation manipulation of the algorithms is interesting to me and how they're doing it. The unrecredited time is a crazy number to like target. I, I don't even know. I don't understand what that even is. Um, I think to Elon Musk's credit, he he does listen. He, he makes some challenging decisions to understand um, as a 
a Twitter user, uh, kind of a power user of Twitter in terms of how I consume information. But what's been driving me nuts for the last few months is I, I have people I follow to learn about AI and I don't see stuff from them because they share links to research reports and blog posts and videos and like things they're creating to help me understand AI and that stuff's being hidden. I commonly share links about interesting things related to AI all the time. And I get almost no engagement. I have 19,000 followers, whatever on, on Twitter. Um, and it's like a ghost town. It has been for months. And I, I assume they had made a major change. And, and then for him to just say it out loud of like, yeah, we're hiding. Like, it's like, oh, okay, okay, good. I'm glad we're admitting that in a, in a retweet or a follow-up or whatever. So I just thought it was interesting to, to see what they're doing. I, I think they'll have to change this at some point. Like, because I, I feel like Paul Graham made a couple of great points. Someone said, like, if, if, because people don't know Paul Graham from YC, um, you know, the combinator where I saw Sam Altman was the president before he went to OpenAI. So someone said, if Twitter was a startup part of YC and the founders did this uh, to say improve retention, what would you tell them? He said, I would tell them not to. It's bad for users and bad for the world. And if you pull shit like this, it leaves room for competitors who give people what they actually want. I was like, it's a pretty, pretty good way of putting it. And then someone came on and said something about Twitter. And he said, what people use Twitter for is not identical with what Twitter uses people for. That was so brilliantly stated. So I'm here trying to learn about AI, trying to share knowledge about AI. And that is not, they don't care about that. Like, so if links are valuable to me, they, they just don't care. So yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting. Like if you were wondering why you know, Twitter maybe isn't as usable right now. Um, if you learned from links or shared links that you now have your answer, they're hiding it from everybody. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of just a, a, a lesson learned. And like any time you're working with tech companies or using tech platforms, you're at the mercy of however they choose to do what they do. And so in this case, uh, luckily I have highly, uh, curated lists and I basically use 99% of the time on Twitter. I use the lists I've created. So I see everything in there that they share. They're not hiding links in there because I get every tweet in there. And then I also get alerts from key AI people. So that's kind of like, if you want to still get value out of Twitter, even though they're not sharing links, uh, build lists, follow our lists. I have a public AI list um, and get alerts from the people that are really the thought leaders that you want to learn from. So I have you know probably two or three dozen alerts set up for different people. And so I see everything they put up and that's how I kind of stay up to date on everything that's going on. So, yeah, I would, cause I was going to ask that too. Like, how do you stay up to date on AI? That, that, that's it. I have Twitter lists and I get alerts from key people and brands. Well, we're glad you do because Paul, you have just <laughs> shed some light on, uh, another crazy busy week in AI. We really appreciate, uh, you unpacking all these topics. I know the audience appreciates it. So thank you again for your time and your insight here. Yeah, thanks for doing the special Sunday night edition. So yeah, this is, again, if you listen to it, it's, it's going to be Tuesday. It's coming out the 26th, but uh, this was Sunday night, September 24th. It is now 10 PM at night and it is time for Mike and I to go to bed. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks Mike, as always. Thank you, Paul. 
Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.